KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. Welcome in San Diego, it's Jade Hindman. MLK Day is just around the corner. We'll look at where the civil rights movement stands today and tell you about one of the biggest local celebrations. This is Midday Edition, connecting our communities through conversation. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. MLK Day is Monday. People all over the country will honor Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy, but few in years past have centered those celebrations on where Dr. King left off in the civil rights movement prior to his assassination. Before we dive into our first interview, there is no better person to hear from than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. himself. Here's a clip from his 1967 interview with NBC News. What is it about the Negro? I mean, every other group that came as an immigrant somehow not easily, but somehow got around it. Is it just the fact that Negroes are black? White America must see that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. Uh, that is one thing that other immigrant groups haven't had to face. The other thing is that the color became a stigma. American society made the Negroes' color a stigma. America freed the slaves in 19... I mean, 1863, through the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to, to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base and yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger. It was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate, and therefore it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma and something worthless and degrading. Just 11 months after that interview, Dr. King was assassinated. But his words about economic justice live on, especially here in California, where reparations will be debated by legislators this year. 
Tanish Hollins has been working in issues of reparations and economic justice in the Bay Area for years. She's the executive director of Californians for Safety and Justice, co-founder of San Francisco Black Wall Street, and vice chair of the San Francisco African Americans Reparations Advisory Committee. Tanish, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you so much for having me. So glad you're here. So as we heard in the intro, you know, much of the current phase of the civil rights movement sits where it left off when Dr. King was assassinated. And that is about issues of economic justice and even the labor movement. If you can, would you paint the picture of where society stands in reaching the goal of economic justice or has progress been stagnant? Well, I mean, if we are looking at the racial wealth gap, I think it tells the story, especially for African-Americans in this country and in our state. We have not seen the type of economic justice that's necessary to level the playing field so that everyone actually has access to what they call the American dream, to buy a home, to you know stabilize their lives, to leave a legacy for their families. And that is especially true for Black people and people who come from marginalized communities. We still see the impacts of Jim Crow segregation and racialized policies and even race neutral policies that directly impacted our community's ability to stabilize economically today. The impact is still happening. And you just spoke to it, but how would you define economic justice in terms of Dr. King's vision? I think Dr. King's vision was very clear in that all people would have the right to be able to take care of themselves and their families. Everyone should have the right to dignity and be able to seize the American dream. And I think that he had that vision, not just for Black Americans, but for all Americans. The issue of poverty is a real one. The issue of capitalism and structural racism are real, and they have had real impacts on people's quality of life and their ability to mobilize for themselves and for their next generations. And we see that still happening. So I think the dream was to, again, level the playing field so that so many more people would have access to basic human rights and be able to stabilize their lives and their families and, you know, see a future that everyone could be proud of. You know, when we think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., you know, we can think of his call for a radical transfer of wealth and power, for example. Do you think people often overlook that view on economic justice when we celebrate the holiday? I think they overlook so much of what Dr. King stood for and what he preached about and what he was trying to educate American society about. They have sanitized so much of his legacy and his message to us. But that radical transfer of wealth also comes with a radical transfer of power that allows people agency to be able to mobilize and protect their communities, their families, and their legacies. And that is what the call to action is right now in this moment and the work that we have been doing in San Francisco around reparations. It is about a radical approach, a radical transformation to what we see happening right now to repair the harm done to our community, specifically to Black San Francisco. And that is imperative because if we do not invest in the community that is most marginalized, least resourced, and most oppressed, then we see bad outcomes for everyone. Or to reverse that, if we double down on our investment and repair the harm done to Black people, 
into our economic mobility, we see everyone else improve. We see outcomes for everyone improve. And that is a radical transformation, is a radical action. And there were a lot of recommendations made from the task force about reparations. How would reparations bring us closer to Dr. King's vision? Well, I mean, it definitely works to begin to heal some of the harm that's been done specifically to Black Americans and is specifically addressing where racialized policies and systemic oppression was very intentional about keeping Black people out of opportunity, again, to purchase homes, the types of schools that our families, our children had to select from, and the quality of education they received, the quality of the care uh, for health, uh, access to health care. All of those things were very intentionally affected, impacted. And so if we are to take a direct approach to addressing those things, we're repairing harm, we are healing our communities, and we are looking at generations of folks being able to pull forward and be able to close some of those gaps that we see right now. I want to talk about another focus of your advocacy, and that's investing in vulnerable communities. How exactly should we be investing in our communities? I mean, what kind of resources do we need to improve things like equity and economic power for Black Americans? Well, first, we need to listen to our communities. I think that we often gaslight our communities if they're not experiencing what they're experiencing. We have plenty of data to prove that we don't see the type of investment for Black businesses or potential Black homeowners or folks who are looking for access to capital, even if they've done all of their due diligence to get their financial house in order, so to speak, to be marketable or to, you know, to be eligible for these types of things. Racialized discrimination is real. So we have to acknowledge that and we have to address that. I think we spend so much time as a community trying to justify our need and you know, communicate our humanity to people that we're looking for opportunities to build because they were legally sanctioned. We were legally sanctioned for being able to participate. So one is just the acknowledgement, which is part of the reparations process, is to acknowledge the harm that's been done. But then the other way to do this is to listen directly to community and to create an economic infrastructure that we actually have agency over. And that means the capacity to create banks, the capacity to create uh, medical facilities, the capacity to create businesses and to have investments that we have uh, enough say-so over on how we're able to build out and scale those businesses and to become owners. Um, When you look at the original Black Wall Street or any other thriving community, no matter what the ethnic makeup is, that is what you see. You see people have access to space, access to resources and the agency to do business with each other to continue building that economic infrastructure. That's what's necessary. And, you know, MLK Day is often co-opted, right? I mean, you said earlier that Dr. King's words and actions have been sanitized. For you, what is the true meaning behind the holiday? What should we be thinking about when celebrating or observing MLK Day? It is never lost on me that with Dr. King's legacy, what's often left out is that the power of his words and the power of his organizing and his heart for humanity ultimately led to his death. It was the fact that he was calling so clearly and so consistently and had moved a nation 
to align with a vision where racism and inequality and poverty were wrong and made the moral obligation of everyone to stand up against it, to change it, ultimately cost him his life and so many others in the movement. And it's unfortunate that even in this moment, people have to sacrifice being killed politically or economically to stand up and say that everyone deserves, but especially those who are most marginalized, deserve to be able to live in dignity, to have access to resources and to live the dream to, to purchase and to own and to have agency over their lives. We're still fighting that fight. So as we teach our children the I have a dream speech, as we, you know, march down and we talk about unity and solidarity, let's not forget that we are still very much in the fight of our lives for our humanity especially as black people and marginalized people, and that we are still putting it all on the line to see that dream come true where people actually do have what they need. And when you talk about it being a fight for our lives, and you talk about Dr. King having lost his life for speaking out clearly on these issues, I can only imagine what doing the work that you do is about and and the toll that it takes. Tell me about that. I mean, this is... This work isn't easy, and it is a marathon. It's not something that you you do overnight or check in with once a week. I mean, tell me about that. No, for those of us who are involved in this work, it, it is our lives. It is our lives. And there's so many people playing their part in so many ways. And I don't want to, you know, downplay the wins that we have. We've had some very historic wins uh, in the movement for justice and equality just here in California through the work that Californians for Safety and Justice has led, we passed a historic piece of legislation, Senate Bill 731, which automates record expungement for people who are living with old convictions. And there are some qualifications around this, but the ultimate goal is that once people have done their time, that they are done and that their record is clear so that they have a second chance at life, a second chance of being able to stabilize their lives, get jobs, get housing, get stable, and continue building for themselves. So the work is not in vain, but it does take a toll on me and those of us who are living in it because it's impossible to not be impacted. And it's it's impossible to listen to the stories of everyday people who, whether they made a mistake at one point in their lives or just happened to be born into an environment or a circumstance where they were already experiencing the symptoms of oppression, that you know, there's still so much more for us to do. And we see the casualties happening every day. And so it's hard you know, to be in this work and not feel sometimes overwhelmed by what's in front of us. But I'm encouraged by the fact that, like you said, this is a marathon and we stand on a timeline. This is a moment in time. I am honored and so many that stand next to me, whether it's in Black Wall Street or in the Reparations Advisory Committee or our survivors and our folks who are living with old convictions who come up to the Capitol and share their stories. I'm encouraged every day by the hope and resilience of our people and by what we are able to win big and small through showing up. And in all of that, we prioritize our healing. This is a process of healing in many ways. You know, the truth and reconciliation, being able to tell our stories and then see things change through law or see them change, we bring more resources back to our community. But it is important for us, you know, to keep ourselves covered. And so for me, it's rest, 
you know, it's my spiritual health. It's keeping people around me that I love. It's, you know, seeing my children continue to grow and just being reminded, you know, that I stand, you know, at a moment in time on behalf of my ancestors, my family and the people who are around me. And I'm prepared to pass this on to the people who are in front of me to continue. I have been speaking with Tanish Hollins, the executive director of Californians for Safety and Justice, co-founder of San Francisco Black Wall Street, and vice chair of the San Francisco African Americans Reparations Advisory Committee. Tanish, thank you so much for joining us and thanks for the work you do. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. Coming up, a conversation about human rights with the keynote speaker of Alliance San Diego's All People Celebration. It starts with us. It starts with you as an individual. What can you do within your scope of influence to make a change in your community? You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. Welcome back to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. This Monday, Alliance San Diego will hold its 36th annual All People's Celebration in San Diego, honoring the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The keynote speaker for the event this year is Dr. Elisa Warren. Warren is a human rights leader serving as president of International Association of Official Human Rights Agencies, as well as the executive director of the Missouri Commission on Human Rights. And she joins us now. Dr. Warren, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to Midday Edition. Jay, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you today. Glad to have you. So uh, the theme for this year's All People Celebration is claiming dignity. What does that mean to you? Well, I think it's a wonderful theme, first of all, because dignity is inherent to all human beings. So we just have to claim that and own that and know that we are simply born with dignity and with with the ability to have those rights just by the virtue of being human, by being born. So we need to claim that, own that and treat others with that respect. So the theme is absolutely fantastic. And what led you to a life of human rights work? Well, you know, I think it it found me, <laughs> quite frankly. I was uh, doing some work in uh, the healthcare industry, uh, helping with some uh, Americans with Disabilities Act issues, and it really spoke to me. So I started down the path of working with underserved communities and populations, whether it would be with minority and women-owned businesses or whether it's with uh, procurement and making sure that there's inclusive opportunities in contracting for marginalized groups and also uh, really even wrote my dissertation on community involvement and disparities in in our communities. So I spent about seven years researching and writing on how to have a more inclusive society. Right. And, And human rights, it really covers a lot of ground as you just kind of laid out. So how do you define it and place it in today's context here in the U.S.? Well, it is a lot. You're right. There's so much involved in human rights. A lot of times we'll get phone calls, you know, at our agency that say, my human rights have been violated, when really what they mean is they didn't get their unemployment benefits. So it's a little bit different. And, uh, but human rights 
on a larger scale is really an important piece of our day-to-day living. And it's really a part of the messaging that and the legacy that Dr. Martin Luther King left with the work that he did in civil and human rights in the United States. So to me, uh, it's really time for our country to take it back, to create a culture of human rights, one that is respectful of all people, one that uh, allows people to thrive and to be healthy and to be happy and to be the best person, the best human that they can be. And so I think in some ways our society has has slipped backwards and it's time for us to really work together to claim that and to you know be the beloved community that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King aspired to be. So, you know, I know you're in Missouri and Missouri has been near the center of much of our nation's reckoning with racism and police brutality in recent years. Uh, The killing of Michael Brown by police in 2014 took place in Ferguson. The killing of Anthony Lamar Smith also comes to mind that happened in St. Louis, uh, my hometown. The former officer responsible for his killing, Jason Stockley, was ultimately found not guilty of murder, leading to ongoing protests there. Can you talk about human rights in the context of what we've seen in Missouri in cases like these alone? Yeah, I think we have unfortunately been at the forefront of some of these cases in Missouri and St. Louis, particularly. You mentioned the Mike Brown case in the city of Ferguson, which is, you know, a wonderful community. I work I, I, after that uh, tragic event happened in Ferguson, where Michael Brown was killed by a police officer uh, there and left on the street in the hot. August sun for hours and hours, I was able to meet and work and partner with some of the local human rights community leaders there in Ferguson to really begin to try and help address some of the racial injustice, really while the entire world was watching. There were, you know, people descended on Ferguson from all over the world. The media, cameras were everywhere, you know, fires were burning and the community was hurting. And so, I had an opportunity to partner with the local Human Rights Commission there in Ferguson. The president of the Human Rights Commission was actually very involved and very engaged in working towards finding unity in the community. And so one of the things that we did was work together as a community to find ways to begin to try to heal some of the relationships. We created what's called Unity Weekend there in Ferguson, and it's still going on, you know, 10 years later, but it brings together community leaders and businesses, schools, and law enforcement there to begin to heal some of the mistrust and some of the hurt and give people an opportunity to come together. So that happened as a step forward. You know, after the killing of Mike Brown, Anthony Smith, and even George Floyd in 2020, calls for society to simply recognize the humanity of Black people have really grown louder. How do you think society has and is responding to that call? Yeah, I do. I think you you bring up a really good point, Jade, and that is that when um, George Floyd was murdered in plain daylight on where everyone could see it, you know, things that have been happening for decades and even longer, but was never videotaped like that. I think people really had a reckoning to see just what in fact is and can happen. And we began to see folks that maybe would never 
be outraged about something like that, take action and to become involved and to protest and to, you know, you saw people of all ages and demographics and young people, older people, all races, all ages, really coming together to make noise about the fact that this must stop, that that the use of excessive force by law enforcement just cannot continue to happen. And it it did. We did see the humanity of this man in plain sight. And I think it really woke up the consciousness of our country in many ways. And it's still it and it has unfortunately this gentleman had to lose his life for it, but it did kind of poke the bear, which is the elephant that we have in our country, which is that of systemic racism and excessive force and violence against black and brown people. And so it has changed the dynamic somewhat, but there's still so much work to do that we just, I always continue to say that we need to keep our foot on the gas and continue to have these conversations and to continue to push back and to work on making improvements wherever we can, because, you know, even small incremental change is still change. Yeah. And you say that moment poked the bear and in many ways it moved the legacy and vision of Reverend Martin Luther King forward. Um, So what do you think of most when reflecting on the legacy of, of MLK? I'm always in awe. I actually went through the, King Center Nonviolence 365 training some years ago and got certified in that and was able to really take a deep dive into his teachings, into his philosophies. And whenever I get a chance to do more reading and and, uh, reflecting on his work and his messaging that he gave his life for, it recharges me. It makes me know that the work that we're doing, that all of us are doing in this space is very important. We're continuing his legacy. And I think that While there's much work to do, I think right now, Dr. Martin Luther King would be 95 years old. And uh, I think he would still say that we've got work to do and that we need to continue to make incremental changes where we can, whether it's in business or whether it's, you know, in our schools and, you know, helping our children, whether it's in healthcare. But um, there's much, much work to do. And when I think about his philosophy of keeping you know, it was, you know, made his philosophies were borrowed largely from Gandhi and also his own Christian faith and belief, but that of nonviolence, that of, you know, working with those that are perhaps your enemies, but figuring out where there's that common thread that we can work together uh, to make a change, to make an impact, to make society better for all of us. If we raise the water level for one, we're raising it for everyone. And that just improves everyone's life. And so I think that just as we celebrate MLK Day on January 15th, it's time to reflect on that. Even beyond his, you know, in his I Have a Dream speech, one of the quotes, and there's so many King quotes that just give me chills because they're so poignant. But the quote, the quote in his I Have a Dream speech that talks about the need to lift ourselves from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. And I think, you know, a big part of this is to move forward, to be able to embrace the human dignity that we are all born with and and work towards 
getting to that beloved community that he talked about. And we can get there. I I feel very confident that we can. And it will just be better for everyone once we figure out how to live together, how to respect one another, how to respect each other's humanity. And, you know, you mentioned all the work that still needs to be done uh, to, to get to that place. You are working to create a National Human Rights Institute in the U.S., Yes. Uh, tell me, why is it important and what, what would that agency do? Yes, I'm so glad you asked that, Jade, because that is work that has been going on for a while. But as president of the International Association of Official Human Rights Agencies, I've been really working hard to try and create more awareness. I've been partnering with wonderful groups like Alliance San Diego and others around the country to move the needle for the um, creation of a national human rights institution. And essentially what that is, is it's an independent national leadership organization. It would be in government that would promote and facilitate uh, human rights implementation or implementation of the treaties that this country signed over 30 years ago. And we've been very good at telling other countries that they should have this National Human Rights Institute yet we don't have one in the United States. There's 120 other democratic countries around the world that have NHRIs uh, that do the work of um, bringing human rights home to their country, to their jurisdictions, and yet and still the United States is not a part of that dialogue. We are essentially the empty chair at the global table of human rights. We do not have that, and I and I think that it's because it's not a priority within uh, the powers that be at the federal level. And so we're really working hard to try and create interest for the need of this uh, NHRI, if you call it. And in fact, recently I've been working with a group of colleagues nationwide to kick off a national campaign for NHRI to help the United States create awareness um, and to make a real change in our country. And in fact, we just launched a brand new website, Jade, and it's there's a ton of information out there that you can learn more about it. And it's www.nhri for USA. And it is just chocked full of information about how communities and jurisdictions can be a part of letting our lawmakers know in Washington that this is something that will help move the needle in our country, like our our fellow democratic countries around the world. Jurisdictions can even, you know, create a resolution uh, within their jurisdictions saying that, you know, this is something that we're interested in seeing move forward because it will help implement human rights here at home and help us to address challenges here in the United States. And we'll have that website for listeners on our website at kpbs.org. And that in mind, what do you hope people take away from your keynote here in San Diego? I'm hoping that people will realize that it starts with me. It starts with us. It starts with you as an individual. What can you do within your scope of influence to make a change in your community? And, you know, how do you let your light shine? We all have different gifts and different uh, abilities, uh, large or small. When you put all of those together and we work towards that common goal of human dignity and the beloved community, I think that we would be just surprised at how much we can 
improve our communities and make this country a better place. It's already a great place, but we can be better. And I think we all have a part to play in that. So if there's anything that people take away, I think that it's it's not up to someone else to make changes. It's up to all of us together collectively to work together to create opportunities for growth and embrace inclusion and all people and know that all people have humanity and are worthy of respect. Dr. Elisa Warren is president of the International Association of Official Human Rights Agencies and will be the keynote speaker at this year's All People's Celebration on Monday. Dr. Warren, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Jade. It has been a pleasure to talk with you. Hopefully you'll get to come to the event on Monday. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. And the 36th annual All People's Celebration is happening this Monday, January 15th at the Balboa Park Activity Center. For more information or tickets, visit alliancesd.org. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.